There is nothing that stops any museum right now from just returning every single cultural object in their collections. So why not? That would be an amazing, beautiful thing to happen. I think what's needed is an actual engaged conversation about all of these questions that have been relegated to the museum. And it's, it's disappointing to me that this isn't what's happening because this would be a lot of fun. I want to make this very, very clear that this is intimately tied to the process of colonization and the settler colonial project of genocide. But I wanted to create a center where Native kids could come and learn about their culture and learn about their history and increase their pride in their Native American identity and heritage and be able to share that with other people. Welcome to Challenging Colonialism, a podcast dedicated to amplifying the voices of Indigenous California. This podcast centers Native voices, and our intention is to highlight the significant work being done by Indigenous communities to challenge ongoing colonialism and to broadcast information about the resistance and resilience of Indigenous California in the past, present, and the future. In this episode, you will hear from Dr. Amy Lontree, Dr. Illyrio Carina, Dr. Samuel Redman, Greg Castro, Dr. Kutcher Risling Baldi, Nicole Lim, Dr. Chris Green, and Dr. Micah Parson. We want to share a content warning for this episode, where specific instances of dehumanization are discussed in detail, including grave robbing and the ongoing institutional disrespect of the bones of ancestors. Please take care while listening as we wrap up season two with the focus on museums. My name is Amy Lontree, and I'm a professor of history at the University of California, Santa Cruz. I've been here since, since 2007, and I'm an enrolled citizen of the Ho-Chunk Nation, and we're in uh, Wisconsin, and I grew up in Minneapolis, St. Paul, so I consider myself uh, also an urban Indian as well. And I was always really interested and passionate about museums. As a child, I was always um, asking my parents to take me to places where I could, um, you know, visit museums. I remember going to family vacations uh, around Thanksgiving, um, visiting our relatives in Chicago, and always begging my parents to take me to the Field Museum or any of the Chicago uh, museums. I always wanted to stop at, at any museum on the road. Well, they are definitely part of the settler colonial project. And I'm reminded of the words of Lakota scholar Craig Howe. And I always begin my class, the historical relationship between Native people and museums, with this important quote. And he states that the Colombian legacy, now 500 plus years and counted, is by many accounts genocidal. The atrocities committed by Columbus, those under his command and those who followed him are legion. In the name of God or science, in the pursuit of gold or glory, and in the service of imperialism or manifest destiny, the bodies and beliefs of the Indian peoples of the Western Hemisphere, along with their possessions and their lands, were plundered and debased. And a substantial portion of the American Indian collections hoarded in museums is made up of that tainted bounty. So when I begin the class and introduce this topic to students, I want to make this very, very clear that this is intimately tied to the process of colonization and the settler colonial project of genocide. Now, 
the time period in which many important museums in the United States were established and the collecting of Native American culture um, really begins is viewed by many as the nadir of Indian existence on this continent. Now, tribal nations across um, the Western Hemisphere experienced great population declines as a result of European colonization, and anthropologists and collectors at the turn of the 20th century thought of themselves in a race against time and engaged in what we refer to as salvage ethnography to collect the, quote, so-called last vestiges of dying races. We see the emergence of the field of anthropology during this time period, and they are in the business of collecting all things Indian. This is a time period of great suffering, and it is during this time period when all of this rapid collecting, this dispossession of Native American cultural belongings are moved from the Native world into the museum world. So Native people were basically sources to be collected, objects, bodies, languages, and ethnographic information for consumption by museums that, that sought to reframe indigenous history, culture, and lifeways into their own Western knowledge systems. So in terms of how these Native American cultural belongings or objects were displayed, now the exhibitions that were developed at this time clearly reflected the mindset of the time period. The notion of Native people as a vanishing or dying race was prevalent in most exhibitions developed well into the 20th century. Exhibitions also tended to reinforce the view of static, unchanging cultures, and certainly we've all seen them, the diorama, which is a popular display technique used in natural history museums, tended to do this by keeping Indians basically frozen in a particular time period and by displaying them near dinosaurs and other extinct animals. Uh, additionally, objects um, were presented and defined by Western scientific categories of use and not indigenous categories. And native societies were also often defined by their functional technology. We were basically only what we made, right? I'm Alirio Karina or Alirio Karina. I am organizer of the Member School and a postdoctoral fellow at the Princeton African Humanities Colloquium. I, I am broadly a scholar working on uh, the history of ideas in Africa and their transformations, particularly in relationship to anthropology and as a way of examining transformations in racialization and the production of blackness in Africa. You're talking about a building, often a building constructed with a huge public investment of, of resources, huge amount of public funds to build something grandiose. And it is filled to the brim, its corners and edges, never mind the bits on, on display, with stuff that was collected, the best looking of which ends up on display. So the myth, of course, is that the, the museum is a place for popular science in its early era. It is the place where the public comes to be educated about the world. But the public wants to look at stuff that looks good. So it is the interesting objects. It is the macabre objects. It is the human remains. It is the extremely decorated objects, the things that have a claim to uniqueness. All of these kinds of materials that end up being the, the display priority of every museum that can afford to display them. And museums are judged and kind of mentally ranked on the basis of the uniqueness and the aesthetic quality of the things in their collections. 
And in some ways, uh, for this reason, I find that the art museums are a little bit more honest about what they're doing because they don't pretend that they care about anything other than what looks nice. They are interested in what looks nice, what they can show off and say, look how look this looks. Isn't it a nice looking thing? They reproduce the same kinds of erasures as museums that aren't calling themselves art museums. But it's all a game to, to grab the attention of the museum visitor. And it's a very well-developed game. Uh, I am Samuel J. Redman, and I am a historian and a history professor at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. And I'm especially interested in the history of anthropology. It's really important, right, that the museum model, the sort of Western idea emulated from European museums uh, became sort of this official mode of preservation, right? So that, again, is something that we're, we're continuing to deal with today. These legacy collections that were collected over 100 years ago, what do we do with them today? Kroeber in California, importantly, builds up a massive collection of ancestral California remains. So these um, uh, uh, human bodies that are believed to be uh, of value to science, of comparative racial anatomy, but then also uh, uh, ideas about the human past in California. Archaeologists believe that these are really valuable assets and resources. Uh, and that's a really troubling legacy for, for many California Indians to then reckon with is that, okay, there are certain things that are left behind that, that give us certain federal abilities in terms of federal recognition and status, but that also went with uh, the excruciating trauma of, of collecting uh, remains and, and more or less leaving them locked in a basement for uh, many generations. Large human remains collections are being built up and uh, archaeologists and physical anthropologists are, are sort of coming into their own and creating a discipline and or disciplines and uh, an emphasis is, is taking place on acquiring unique uh, 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 bodies that potentially reflect uh, early on, it was really all about racial differences. And uh, ultimately, this is at its core a uh, colonialist and a white supremacist project, right? Like if there's a hierarchy of human ability, uh, what a coincidence that white males always sort of end up at the top of this sort of proposed hierarchy and that uh, 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 African-Americans and, and Native Americans are at, at the bottom of this hierarchy. And, and that had very real political and social consequences, these academic ideas. Um, but, but people felt like, okay, if these are being debated, what's the actual evidence? Can we acquire, you know, things that we can measure and remeasure and, and compare against one another? So human bones were especially prized and indigenous remains become especially prized for these uh, anthropology collections. So once that sort of story uh, is in place, it's actually quite surprising how many remains end up coming from California and how quickly and how early they end up coming from California. Um, and a lot of that uh, ends up uh, at museums in, in the East, uh, 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 places like the Smithsonian Institution. In terms of my educational journey, I majored in history at the University of Minnesota, and it was there where I also connected with the larger Native American community on campus. I met incredible role models there. And they really inspired me to think about how I could be of service to Indigenous communities in terms of my own career. And so I really, as I said, loved history and thought seriously about a career in museums.
And so I had I held internships at the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History as an undergraduate. And it was during that time that I learned about the plans for the Smithsonian's National Museum of the American Indian. This was in the late 1980s. So it was a really exciting time to be in D.C., Plans were underway to build that museum. And then later I would focus on the Smithsonian's National Museum of the American Indian in my own book. So I was really interested in history, uh, majored in history at Minnesota, then went on to get a master's degree in the social sciences at the University of Chicago and a master's degree in history at Indiana University. And then later um, I attended the University of California, Berkeley, where I received a PhD in ethnic studies. Later, I published um, that research in decolonizing museums uh, representing Native American national and tribal museums in um, 2012. As we've seen, you know, Native people involved in the museum world and the development of tribal museums and community collaborative exhibitions, which the first thing that tribes always say is that make sure to tell everyone that we are still here. And that seems so obvious right, to me as a Ho-Chunk person, right, that we are still here. But the impact of these types of exhibitions is so deeply felt, even into the present, that you have, you know, um, tribal um, and Native American advisory boards, you know, in, in the 1990s, early 2000s saying, hey, first message, let them know we're still here. Ongoing cultural um, relevance was not an exhibition technique pursued at a time when Native people were believed to be on the road to extinction. And so I think it's, you know, some of the classic examples of those types of exhibitions, as I mentioned, the British Museum, but also the American Museum of Natural History, as well as at the Smithsonian and the Field Museum. Again, these were um, exhibitions that were presented in a very distant third person curatorial voice and really didn't include Native American voice or perspective or first person testimony. They obviously didn't talk about their ongoing connection and relevance to Native people in the present, right? We were believed to be on the road to extinction when many of these exhibitions were started, right? We can think about museums being colonial and we can think about them being imperial. We can think about their role in doing a thing in the over there for the colonial center. And we can think about them doing a thing in the colonial center. And these are these are two kind of slightly different dynamics uh, as to what the museums do and what they have done historically. For the colonial relation, the, the obvious touch point is collection. There are things that are collected that come to become a part of museums. Uh, they are collected either as kind of war trophies, or they're collected as part of collecting expeditions, or as part of collecting efforts by uh, very keen collectors. But they are collected during a time of quite violent colonial transformations, and in ways that essentially guarantee that we cannot be confident about the innocence of the claim to holding an object. We cannot confidently say, in the, in the way that I can say that a rock that I picked up in my garden is mine, that an object in a museum belongs to the museum. And many of the things that one can say about this almost read like a, a symptomatology of what's wrong with the museum. So one says, oh, there's a stolen object and it's in a display case and it just says thing from people and a hypothetical date and then whoever donated it to the museum, whatever that means. And so so much is left out of the frame and, and so much is made to appear 
quite natural and ordinary that if we step back for a second, we see that something's wrong. And we see immediately, oh, this object was stolen. This is not a person who necessarily had rightful claim to it. How did this person buy it? Under what grounds did they give it to the museum? Did they get paid to give it to the museum? Was it a sale and not a donation? What is going on with this? Why is this object still in the museum? Why is it not repatriated to a source community? And this is especially the case every single time one sees a Native American item in an American museum, because of course, the obligations that NAGPRA ostensibly imposes are rarely fully met, especially because so much seemingly ordinary collecting is grave goods. And there is no way to confirm that other than to know that people went grave robbing on holiday. So a museum can quite innocently say, oh, but we, we don't know that that is the case, that it was a grave good. So we are not necessarily under any particular obligation to consider this a, an object other than an ordinary, whatever it might be, an ordinary bracelet, something or other. It is not immediately apparent that it is sacred in some kind of way, that it carries any obligations. But but these items are quite heavily charged. The impression one gets entering a museum is that this is a natural way of holding them. So it, it feels very important to want the museum to change. It feels important to want to recognize all of the harms that are embedded into the museum. But is there a way to do that ethically and decide, oh, there's a stopping point where the museum stays? Is there a way to, to ask the museum visitor to do that work and then say, actually, no, it's fine now. Everything was bad, but now it's fine. Is there a way to, to responsibly do that um, in relationship to source communities where the claim is you can get some of your things back, but the rest, no, they're ours. I don't think that works. My work in decolonizing museums was really focused for the most part on exhibitions. But my work as of late is really centered on, on repatriation. And as we know, where are we 33 years and counting since the passage of NAGPRA, there are many institutions that are not in compliance with the law. And the University of California, where I'm employed, has one of the largest collections of ancestors and cultural items subject to NAGPRA in the United States. And while some of the UC campuses have repatriated ancestors and cultural belongings to tribes, other campuses, including Berkeley, have been resistant to repatriation as required by state and federal law. So my work in museums has really kind of, as I said, shifted to this very policy oriented type of work. But this is what I believe is important to see the numbers of how many institutions still retained control of our ancestors and these cultural belongings, to hear the deeply painful stories coming from Indian country. You know, leaders would talk about having to deal with these colonial institutions and the resistance that they faced, the racism that they faced. For me, this is something that I couldn't look away from. I graduated from the University of California, Berkeley. How, you know, how science was weaponized against Native people. Thinking through what a decolonizing museum looks like, I believe that this was an essential area that needed attention. And I wanted to contribute to those efforts. I think most people are shocked when they learn that the Smithsonian has 30,000 sets of human remains um, or that museums on the West Coast have tens of thousands of sets of human remains. They have no idea. They're not really uh, represented in the exhibitions in that way. So 
it's perhaps unsurprising, but people knew about this as a problem. I want to make that clear, but it really becomes a public facing problem for many native communities. By and large, the shocking element of it is how little science was actually done on the, the, the remains ultimately. But if you sort of take the long scope, um, one of the, the arguments that I make in bone rooms was that there were essentially anti-racist aspects of the story that come out of these original collections that are ultimately, originally, I should say, brought together for purposes of scientific racism. Um, there's sort of an irony there that the collections that, that people were so obsessed with bringing together to, to showcase human differences upon further scrutiny we find things like, oh, race is actually a human construction because what we think of as race is happening on a, a spectrum and that there's no like categorical differences between human beings, but in fact, our ancestry determines how we look and, and our, you know, our skin tone is determined by certain sorts of, you know, environmental and ancestral realities, not a racial reality despite the internet and digitization and more availability and access to these materials, probably about only 1% of museum objects are displayed. So that even at smaller, medium-sized museums, but especially at large museums like the Smithsonian, when you go and you see a, a California basket represented, that means that they have 99 others that are not. I'm Greg Castro. I'm to Trollslinen in Rumson and Ramatushaloni and involved in way too many organizations and in many, too many events doing too many things. Um, but I feel compelled to do that because um, I'm so grateful for the culture I have and I want to get back. One of my friends in the industry talks about the, the hoarding aspects of archaeology because the archives are bulging at you know, walls uh, because they don't have room for all this stuff certainly not in a, in, in a proper storage sense, but actually any storage at all. There's stories of a place up north of us in San Francisco Bay Area that a very well-known and should have been well-versed in the process institution was storing stuff and hadn't looked at it in years and they walked into it and they saw a warehouse that had holes in the roof right over the boxes, which were cardboard, what was left of the cardboard. <laughs> And of course, all the things were disintegrated, and the documentation that was in there was, you know, piles of ooh and goo and, and mold. And of course, the material, all the organic material was destroyed, and the inorganic material was, was damaged. And it was like boxes and boxes and boxes of it. These are supposed to be a, a state-sanctioned, appropriate institute that should know how to do this and wasn't doing it. The museum is public history in a kind of categorical way in a lot of the West, even though very few people turn to the museum to learn about history in a, in a serious and depth way, as intense as public historians want museums to, to do, as intense as the inventors of the anthropological museums wanted anthropological museums to do, whether they were the Museum of Man aspiring to bizarrely uh, unite humankind through the objectification of colonized peoples, or whether they had more explicitly racial scientific values that they were trying to produce in, in the metropole, and certainly those functioned, right? The museums did, did that successfully. 
the average person doesn't care all that much about them. So they're not going to have a relationship to the museum that's setting out to find meaning in it in the ways that people are trying to, to produce in it. So if we're imagining that deeply ambivalent visitor, what does it mean to engage them in the questions that supposedly the museum is supposed to be broaching? And I'm, I'm just giving you more questions. And, and this feels sometimes like a cop out. And sometimes people have accused me of just making critiques and not offering answers. And to this, I have to say that there's a very good reason for it, which is that it would be just as wrong for me to dictate the future of public memory as it would be to rely on an invention from 150 years ago as the form that we happen to decide upon. I think what's what's needed is an actual engaged conversation about all of these questions that have been relegated to the museum. And it's, it's disappointing to me that this isn't what's happening because this would be a lot of fun. It would be lively. It would be interesting. People care about these questions. And it's not happening because, because people who care about museums care about museums. Hey, I'm Kilit, Dr. Kutcher Rizling Baldi Ahoyet. Um, I'm Dr. Kutcher Rizling Baldi. I am Hoopa Yurikin Karuk and enrolled in the Hoopa Valley tribe. There is nothing that stops any museum right now from just returning every single bone cultural object item in their collections. There's nothing that stops you, nothing. So why not? That would be an amazing, beautiful thing to happen. And then we can build museums the way they should have been built, which is like in relationship with the people that they are representing in a way that like honors the sovereignty and self-determination um, and actually like demonstrates that that work is far more powerful. When you work with California natives, you're gonna get far more insight and creativity and than you're gonna get if you just do it in a vacuum on your own, as if we're not the people of, of this place, the people of these, of these things that you're working with. I have so many stories about museums and objects and everything, but one of my favorites is I was like working in a basket collection and there was this burden basket and part of it had broken off. And um, at the time they were like, look, you can look at it, but try not to touch it too much because it's falling apart. And don't pick it up or like move it around. It's, fall it's falling apart, it's falling apart. And so everybody was like, ooh, it's falling apart, it's falling apart. And I raised my hand and I said, you know, I know somebody that can fix that for you. And they were like, what? And I said, I know somebody that could fix that for you. And actually, because of the piece that fell off, it wouldn't be that hard. You just have to wrap some leather around it or, you know, and they were like, what are you? Like, they couldn't wrap their head around fixing it. And it was such a different point of view for me, because in my mind, I was like, why don't you just fix it? And then you can pick it up and use it and do stuff with it. And they were just like, this object is slowly falling apart. And our preservation of it is to like, watch it fall apart but do nothing with it because it's gonna disintegrate eventually. In terms of decolonizing museum practice, I, I, have, I talk about in the book, having experienced working collaborative, you know, on developing collaborative, community collaborative exhibitions with tribes. And I talked about, you know, the how the literature is always emphasizing, you know, collaboration and sharing authority. 
Um, and they have made significant, you know, inroads, many museums. But I really wanted to explore how museums can assist indigenous communities and serve as a site of decolonization through honoring indigenous knowledge and worldviews. And by discussing the hard truths of colonization and exhibits, um, in an effort to promote healing and understanding. So while I had seen many positive, um, you know, directions in museums, again, you know, the community collaborative exhibitions, exhibitions that emphasize contemporary survival, um, ones that had shared authority. What I really wanted to think through is how museums could serve as sites of conscience and sites of decolonization to honor indigenous knowledge and worldview, to really center indigenous knowledges, right? And also think through or represent um, Native American history in a way that can move us towards greater understanding in an effort to promote healing and understanding. So for me, I really wanted to extend the possibilities of what museums could be. My name is Nicole Lim, and I'm the executive director of the California Indian Museum and Cultural Center. We're located in Sonoma County. And um, this area is my ancestral territory. I'm Pomo and Miwok, and we have 24 Pomo and Miwok tribes in our region in Sonoma Lake and Mendocino counties. Well, museums have been very colonial um, because they're they're about extraction. You know, I don't really see it much different from the extraction of coal and uranium or gold and, and timber um, because it's about taking the native culture and, and the focus, you know, historically, especially through this lens of salvage science was that native culture is not dynamic or shifting, that it was frozen in time and that it had to end in order for something new to make its way forward. And so that is really, in my mind, part of the genocidal structure is, is the dominant society taking from the, you know, the Native American society and deciding and interpreting it, right? Deciding what's important to them or what has significance and how it should be locked away and saved. Um, and that's everything from our ancestors who lay in, you know, whose human remains are locked away in museum basements to our baskets, which are also living and breathing and and locked away in, you know, cold case containers. So, um, you know, our Native people, when we do get to visit our stuff, you know, and I always say decolonization is not just letting us visit our stuff, right? It's giving it back. <laughs> um, we are very emotional, you know, because it's like visiting something that's imprisoned. <laughs> I started off in the museum world in the late 1980s and 1990s. And I think one of the ways that museums can start this process is obviously take a very hard look at their own history. These institutions need to do a deep dive into their colonial history. And I think that some institutions are starting with that. So I think an institution really needs to be aware of what is happening. And one of the conversations that I've been a part of, of course, is thinking through what a decolonizing museum practice involves. 
And that was really powerful for me to witness as a young museum professional on the ground, um, working with Ho-Chunk elders, as well as uh, Mille Lacs Band Ojibwe elders and, and Dakota and Dakota community members as well. And that process of, as I mentioned, sharing authority and really working collaboratively with native people and determining content, not just bringing them in after the fact, right? To maybe, you know, have a, uh, dance performance at the opening, right? But really thinking through the intellectual content of the exhibitions and also giving them authority to determine what they want to convey, right? As well as what they don't want to talk about. And I think that that was really important as well is really respecting those tribal pro uh, indigenous protocols regarding what is um, acceptable to represent because these institutions and the way that they have represented native people over time. I mean, this is a form of colonial violence. These, you know, just, you know, horrible representations that not only continue to convey that we are vanishing races, right? But also sharing um, sacred knowledge with visitors, exhibiting sacred um, objects horribly. I mean, and tragically, they've even exhibited Native American human remains in the past. I mean, this is really deeply, deeply painful for Native people. I got involved working with the museum back in 1996 when it opened in the Presidio of San Francisco. The hope was actually to create the museum in the Presidio as a resilience to the fact that California Native American people built the Presidio. But at the time in the late 90s, um, the Presidio was going through a lot of transitions and ultimately the museum didn't end up there. Um, however, during that time, I was a uh, a young law student, and I was attending the University of San Francisco. I was touring fourth graders around the Presidio and teaching them uh, California Native perspectives on mission history, and at the same time taking constitutional law. And um, I really started to think a lot about the biases that really drive decisions when it comes to constitutional law. And at the time, I remember reading the Ling versus Northwest Indian Cemeteries case, which is a religious freedom case, and realizing that the judges really lacked a fundamental understanding of Native values and cosmology and belief systems and, and didn't have respect for our religious views. You know, I kind of put those th two things together with education, with a, a younger audience, and then thinking about the challenges and limitations of the law and, you know, the erosion of Native American rights through the courtroom and decided that I thought I could do more for positive change in the classroom than the courtroom. The California Indian Museum and Cultural Center, our main kind of guiding vision is to educate the public about the history and contemporary lives of California Indians statewide uh, from a Native perspective. In doing that, we really focus on oral history and storytelling. Uh, one institution can't represent 200 tribes throughout the state, obviously. So. Um, our focus is really on collective histories. You know, we've experienced colonization and genocide <laughs> collectively as a unit. So we focus quite a bit of our resources through curricular reform. Uh, we do a lot of work on cultural revitalization locally because our staff, many of our staff represent uh, Pomo and Miwok tribal communities here in our area. So we work quite a bit on food sovereignty 
We do a lot of education for our community around the transmission of intergenerational knowledge, teaching, plant identification, harvesting, processing, cooking, the traditional foods. We have an exhibit that's all about traditional foods that was the result of about four years of research from our tribal youth program. Uh, We have another exhibit that showcases, it's called Precious Cargo, and it showcases California Indian baby baskets and child rearing traditions throughout the state. And we have an exhibit on Ishi that is really a great catalyst to teach elementary school kids about how California Indian people survived and, you know, were targeted for extermination during the gold rush. So the exhibits are great teaching tools. We've got a native garden. We have different maker stations that showcase traditional ecological knowledge and STEM. Kids are able to weave baskets and turn them into robots that walk across the table. We're able to do different uh, math geometry problems around building um, a redwood bark house. We have all kinds of different activities. Very much a learning center, but our main motivation especially mine since I've been director since 2007, is knowing that I grew up in this county and I had grandparents that really were impacted by assimilation era that were sent to boarding schools that were taught that everything about their Indianness from their language to their belief systems to their food was negative and that it had to be discarded in order for them to survive in white American society. So um, I really felt like that generation uh, was very guarded with information, largely because they were punished for sharing it. But I wanted to create a center where Native kids could come and learn about their culture and learn about their history and um, increase their pride in their Native American identity and heritage and be able to share that with other people. And so um, in 2010, we started a tribal youth ambassadors program. It was also around the time that my kids were in elementary school and dealing with a lot of the same issues that, you know, I did when I was there in terms of stereotype and misinformation and bias. And so um, our tribal youth ambassadors program really engages kids in learning their culture, but also building educational resources for their community. So we do a number of different things. They've They've created Pomo language apps for the iPhone. They've done curriculum. They have um, videos that teach people about fire ecology, um, which is really important in our county because we've had these devastating wildfires for successive years in a row. And then we do a lot of cultural arts. Right now, the kids are doing a bear conservation program uh, where they're learning about the resurgence of the bear population in Sonoma County. Then that kind of overlaps with our food sovereignty because the bears eat the same food as we do. So they go out on hikes and do wildlife cameras and learn how to track bears and look for bear signs and um, create tools and resources that educate the public about how to reduce bear euthanasia and how to, you know, respect the relationship between human and bears. So we do all kinds of different programs. I looked at the Smithsonian's National Museum of the American Indian after the opening of the exhibitions on the National Mall. And what was really interesting that was happening at that moment in time um, were some scholars claiming that the National Museum of the American Indian was a decolonizing museum or decolonized, yeah, represented a decolonizing museum. And I, I had 
I had some concerns, right? Um, first was the absence of discussion of the history of, of colonization, right? Uh, what we, I think in some ways I refer to as the hard truths of Native American history um, or hard truths of U.S. In, indigenous relations. Um, that was really absent. Um, and then the other was... Um, you know, they, they went to great lengths to introduce new knowledge to the visitor, right? They really tried to center indigenous knowledge and worldview and ways of knowing in their exhibition. But one of the things that I was concerned about is whether or not the visitor was really understanding this new knowledge system at work in the institution. So some of my concerns really kind of centered on the needs of the audience, right? And if this was really... Um, a layered exhibition that would really kind of help the visitor understand this new knowledge system at work, right? And then my third concern um, really centered on um, the way in which some of the leadership of the National Museum of the American Indian framed the institution as a form of reconciliation between um, Native people and um, the United States government. And at that point in time, we didn't have a formal apology on the, um, from the United States. And um, certainly that history that they needed to apologize for was not on display in, in the museum. So I had my concerns with some of the, the scholars who were saying that it reflected a decolonizing museum practice. Then I studied, or I first visited the Zeebwing Center of Anishinaabe Culture and Lifeways on the Saginaw Chippewa Reservation. And, you know, again, I, I, was, I was really impressed with their exhibitions, and I felt that it reflected a decolonizing museum strategy. They talk about the hard truths of colonization, but alongside those stories, they also talk about, um, about Native survivance and how they have persisted. And then they also organized their gallery according to um, the seven fires or seven prophecies of the Anishinaabe people. Some of the best practices in museums is developing exhibitions that really privilege indigenous voice and perspective. And here you have it. They decided to reject kind of the standard um, timeline of, of Ojibwe or Anishinaabe U.S. relations and frame their exhibitions according to the prophecies, the seven fires or seven prophecies of the Anishinaabe people. So that was an incredibly innovative way to introduce a new knowledge system to the visitor. So I was very impressed with that tribal museum. They talk about the hard truths of colonization during the period of one of the prophecies. Um, this was a period of great suffering and land loss, loss of land and life and, you know, and, and they represent that on the exhibition floor. But one of the things that they also do, which was so incredibly moving for me, and I think absolutely brilliant, was a section of their um, museum called Blood Memory. And so you're, uh, as you're walking through the galleries and you're introduced to, you know, the history um, during various um prophecies or time or periods of time when you're standing in the area of the gallery where they're talking about this period of loss of of life and um, loss of language culture and suffering during this period and it's actually the 19th century you begin to hear a song that women from the community are singing on a recording and it helps kind of pull you through this really kind of painful um exhibition section into this space of healing. 
and it's, it's got a curve, curvilinear design, and it introduces this beautiful concept of blood memory. It, you know, recognizes that even though, you know, the Anishinaabe people have, have suffered greatly, certainly during this, this previous period, that this is a part of who they are. It is their right as Anishinaabe people to reclaim their culture, their language, and their identity. And I think that what was so beautiful about that section too, is that I've experienced it with other Anishinaabe people, and I could see how how moving that message was. Because as Native people, given the loss, so much loss that we've suffered, I think people always feel self-conscious about what has been lost, right? Oh, I can't speak the language, or I, I don't participate in these kinds of ceremonies. This idea of blood memory reminds them that this is their right to reclaim as Anishinaabe people. But in the context of a museum, it gives people an opportunity to collect their thoughts after having visited a very painful section of the museum. And it also re, um, conveys a message of resilience and, and how they do that is very beautiful. They have these iconic um, works of Anishinaabe art, such as, you know, bandolier bags and other, you know, really beautiful beadwork items in a, in a case. And they frame that case as um, kind of demonstrating that even during the darkest periods in their history, that their ancestors have always managed to create works of great beauty. And I think that is such a wonderful message of resilience. Well, the intended audience for the museum is definitely all of California because it's California's history. It's not just California Indian history. Then there's a lot of people that live in our state um, that don't really know the true authentic history. And um, and I think it's really critical, not just for healing, but, um, you know, so we don't repeat our mistakes of the past. And so I think, um, you know, ideally we wanted to educate everyone, but obviously we also have specific resources that are for our Native American community. And that's really just to support um, our community and combating erasure and stereotypes and um, a lot of the negativity that comes with, you know, being kind of um, outnumbered and <laughs> and overlooked in your own homeland. You know, we really want to do advocacy and increase representation. I think tribally run museums can push back by staying the course. Uh, when we first, you know, opened and here at our new facility in 2001, we went through a lot of planning and strategic planning and museum consultants. And, you know, I came from the law. So everyone said, well, what are you going to do running a museum? And um, and I said, well, it's really about social justice. You know, it's about uh, education and, and changing things for a positive for our community. And the museum is a resource for that. But I was told by consultants and museum consultants who had, you know, a lot of experience that uh, we couldn't tell the whole story because it would lead people depressed. It would people don't go to museums to be depressed. And, you know, I'd often point to the Museum of Tolerance or other examples, you know, where, it, you know, it's about the truth. And um, and I've, I've seen things change. You know, I've seen 
when I went into kind of museum professionals and audiences that often when I talk about these things, there was kind of a look of shock <laughs> and not knowing what to, how to respond. And, and today things are different. I think, I think people are really starting to look at like, how do we decolonize museums? Uh, there is no one kind of fits all for that, but it's really about, you know, meaningful partnerships, making sure Native American people are are coming in, that they're engaging with the collections, that they're being represented in the interpretation. Um, yes, our ultimate goal is to get our things back. <laughs> that that won't change. But in the meantime, there's you know there's lots of creative ways that that, that Native people can be represented and engaged uh, everywhere from the board to the staff to the advisory committees, to the audiences of bringing in Native youth who get to see, you know, the beautiful things that their ancestors made. You know, for me, uh, our ultimate goal is there's a a basket that won an award in the World's Fair in the early 1900s. It's the largest pomo basket in the world. It sits on a shelf at the Smithsonian in Suitland, Maryland, under a plastic tarp. And it doesn't inspire generations of Pomo youth who want to learn how to basket weave. You know, it's it's 3,000 miles away. It should be home. It should be showcased. It should be accessible. Mm -hmm. I think that Native museums really have to just stay the course in knowing that what they're doing is the right thing to do. And that the more that people are informed, um, that when they know better, they'll do better. You know, there's so many baskets and so many collections that are just outside our scope of authority and control. And I want to see more things returned. I think that people have to understand that, you know, these objects have a life cycle in our cultural traditions and our protocols. And some of these things are ceremonial and they need to be returned to dance and prayer. And museums need to facilitate that process. And that can be done through MOUs. It can be done through all kinds of different things. Um, I think we have to be really creative. I think we have to understand that this is the right thing to do and not just have to do what the law demands. You know, now that we have NAGPRA and AB 275, we should also be looking beyond just what the law requires. Like, how can we be creative in doing more? My name is Chris Green. I am the new director of collections and exhibits at the Pacific Grove Museum of Natural History. I am a non-native white man that works with collections of First Peoples and Native Americans uh, and a little bit of Native Hawaiians and folks of the Pacific. Uh, we have a collection that includes a lot of Native American uh, and indigenous objects and very little in the way of any of the white community or uh, non-native communities of Pacific Grove and of Monterey Bay. I have recently graduated with a PhD from the University of Pennsylvania. I got into anthropology because I was really curious about the NAGPRA process, the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. I had been working on developing a summer camp for archaeology when I learned about how NAGPRA was being performed in Colorado, in the state of Colorado, where Chip Colwell and the Denver Museum of Nature and Science had really started to repatriate culturally unidentifiable individuals, as they were called 
uh, long before the regulations were requiring it, or at least I think a couple of years before the regulations were requiring it. So this was a very controversial thing at the time. And I got really inspired by trying to understand why it is that this was controversial. It inspired a passion in me in trying to understand why it is that non-Indigenous folks have such investment in Indigenous cultural heritage and why it is that it's so important for them to hang on to it in museal contexts. My kind of graduate research trajectory really was exploring that question of trying to understand non-Indigenous stakes in Indigenous cultural heritage and the ways in which Indigenous cultural heritage is oftentimes used as kind of an ideological a, a material instantiation of, of kind of colonizing ideology. So um, my experience also was in museum education while I was working on graduate degrees. So I kind of developed this parallel course of experience in repatriation and museum education while also kind of training in museum collections. It's been an interesting place to position yourself because ultimately the folks are interested in you as an anthropologist because you study others, capital O others. And for me, it was really important to situate myself in a way that my anthropology could benefit capital O others, but really I didn't want to make them the object of my study. So it's trying to collaborate with those folks. The Pacific Grove Museum of Natural History was founded in 1883 as a part of the Chautauqua Literary and Scientific Circle. So it has, it's actually, the Pacific Grove Museum of Natural History is actually one of the oldest museums on the West Coast, um, by my understanding. Uh, we have a collection that was kind of originated in that Chautauqua Society um, kind of milieu, where there's a bunch of learned people on the West Coast trying to share culture and share ideas and trying to be worldly, I suppose. We have a mission that is really focused more on the Central Coast and um, Central California, maybe a little bit more broadly. But really, the collection has represented Africa and Asia and a great many objects from throughout the Pacific. So it really is international in scope. And then even nationally, we've got a large collection of Southwestern Puebloan pottery. We've got a large collection of Californian basketry from throughout California. And then we have a, a natural history collection, uh, herbaria and other kinds of um, natural specimens that are really more local, relatively more local to Monterey Bay and to the Central Coast in particular. I have called us the the old white man repository of Pacific Grove, uh, old white rich man repository of Pacific Grove. Might be a little bit unfair because we do have a history, a long history of uh, women leadership of the PG Museum and women involvement in the PG Museum. But many of the largest collections are collectors that are uh, relatively affluent white men. We have a lot of work to do to be able to identify what are sacred objects and what are objects of cultural patrimony and who can we talk to to either help us identify those things and or to be able to get that process started for repatriation. It's going to include just a bunch of emails and letters and phone calls to just start to get people aware of what it is that we think that we have. But really, it has to start locally first. And so I'm building relationships with the local tribal representatives towards trying to just get them involved generally. But repatriation is going to be one aspect of that. 
to be able to talk about repatriation maybe also outside the bounds of what NAGPRA requires, because to work with tribes in good faith, you have to be considerate of the fact that they may not be comfortable with what you have in your institution. It may be important for them to have more back than NAGPRA has required. And so you have to be willing to allow them to change what you're doing and how you're doing it at a pretty fundamental level. And that may include what it is that you're curating or how it is that you're curating objects. So really everything has to be on the table in those conversations. But one of the difficult things is every tribe also has really different capacities as well. And being able to go in with having done the work that you really should have done to be able to identify, know what it is that you have and find all of the information that you can about it for them. But then also allowing them to dictate the terms of kind of the engagement a little bit more as well. So it may be that some of the information that you've collected is not relevant or it is not true to their experience or their knowledge, um, in which case you have to validate their truth, I think, ultimately, and prioritize their truth because it's their objects, ultimately. But every tribe having different kinds of capacities means that they are going to have more or less ability to participate in helping to evaluate objects or helping to really right the wrongs that the museums have kind of caused and the collectors have caused. You want to be able to go into that process, allowing them a lot of room to be able to, to drive the process, you know, handing them the keys to drive the bus, but also not making them feel like they have to drive the bus because ultimately this is a white person issue. This is a museum issue. This is a colonizer issue. And the colonizers have to be a part of the solution. And it's really up to the tribes. And it's going to be different for every tribe to say what that looks like for the colonizer to be a part of that solution. My name is Micah Parson, and I am the Chief Executive Officer at the Museum of Us. Uh, I've been there for 13 years, actually, this week. We have uh, seen a lot of change during that time. The museum that I sort of started at 13 years ago was, was very much still an old-school, traditional kind of anthropology museum. And over the last many years, my team and I have kind of flipped the script on that, and um through a, a long process of a lot of soul searching, we decided that now that we know better, we have to do better, uh, to quote Maya Angelou. And we've sort of unpacked the history of harm that our institution has done as sort of an accomplice of anthropologists and anthropology and anthropology museums, and really taken a long, hard look at that harm, who we've harmed, how we've harmed them, uh, holding ourselves accountable to do better. And coming up with concrete action plans for how we can do better and trying to do our best to put those in place in partnership with the communities that we've harmed and others who uh, we may not have harmed directly, but indirectly we harmed. So that's really been sort of the driving focus of our work. And it's been a very long arc over 13 years. It didn't, we didn't start that path, but we just kept kind of moving forward with, with a lot of instinct in terms of what was the right direction to go? And it's sort of led us um, to that space. My background is a little unusual for a museum professional. I 
have a PhD in anthropology and was trained as a medical and psychological anthropologist. I did my fieldwork on the Navajo Nation in Arizona and New Mexico and learned a lot in that process and learned a lot about myself and, and my own privilege and um, my own positionality and how how to sort of leverage that for good in the in the name of allyship and and I also in addition to the PhD have a law degree I ended up practicing law for about seven or eight years and was an employment law specialist and represented employers and learned a lot about myself and gathered up a, a, a completely different set of tools to put in my toolbox than the ones I developed as an anthropologist and have been you know, using all those tools as necessary sort of to, to continue to help the museum move forward down its path. A really good place to start is Bubble Park itself, which um, sort of emerged uh, as a entertainment offering, if you will, back in 1915, when San Diego had put in a, a bid for the World's Fair and ended up losing at the time to San Francisco, which ended up holding the World's Fair. Uh, in 1915. But San Diego was a town of about 30,000 people at the time. And they said, you know what, we're going to do it anyway. And they created something called the 1915 Panama California Exposition. And it was meant to celebrate the opening of the Panama Canal and kind of put San Diego on the map as the first port of entry. Uh, a lot of people don't know this, but Balboa Park, who's named after the explorer Balboa, Balboa, in fact, never set foot in San Diego. But what's even more important in understanding sort of where the museum sits is um, that back in 1915 or thereabout when the organizers and designers were really planning the exposition, there were in fact Kumeyaay peoples living in Balboa Park at that time, but the organizers deemed them insufficiently Native American from a stereotypical perspective, and so they forcibly removed them from their homes in the park. And then they went to Arizona and they found a group of Pueblo Indians and they put them on the Santa Fe Railroad and they brought them to San Diego. And then um, they created what they called the Painted Desert. It was essentially a Indian demonstration village over by where the zoo is in Balboa Park. And they basically had them do pottery and weaving and basketry um, demonstrations and singing and dancing so all the tourists could sort of come to gawk at them. And, um, you know, that's really the racist sort of colonial history that the entirety of Babylon Park emerged from, which is why when we talk about the museum, we always talk about the unceded ancestral homelands that we're on of the Kumeyaay Nation and really sort of starting any discussion of the museum that we are, are situated in this particular place. There were a series of harms done in this particular place. They had an impact on Kumeyaay and other indigenous peoples. And our job going forward is to truth tell about those and to hold ourselves accountable and to come up with concrete action plans to begin to build trust and relationship anew on a completely different foundation, not one where the museum sort of comes in as the victor uh, gets the spoils and, you know, we won the colonial endeavor. And so uh, we got to take all their stuff and become the expert on all the stuff, but also the experts on the people and really flipping that script to, yes, museums have a certain type of expertise from that sort of scholarly, academic, otherizing 
um, kind of gaze, but that we're not an expert in the lived experience of the peoples who made and used and gave meaning to the uh, belongings that the museum took over many, many years, right? And the ancestors that the museum took over many, many years and refused to give back uh, for decade upon decade upon decade. So we come from this horrible origin story, right? My colleague, Brandy McDonald, who used to be our, our director of decolonizing initiatives and is now at the um, Indiana University Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology as their executive director. Brandy talks about how museums were birthed from the colonial endeavor. And um, it's very true of the museum of us. Then, of course, the San Diego Museum of Man has in its facade nine white men who are colonizers. Eight of them are from Spain. One of them was from England. And each of them sort of did unspeakable atrocities to the Kumeyaay people and, and other indigenous folks. And yet here we are on our very etched into our skin of our building, paying tribute to these men and celebrating them. And we found that one of the first things, once we had gotten to the point where we had built up enough trust and relationship with our Kumeyaay partners and sort of were able to go to them and say, if there was one thing about the museum that you would change, what would it be? One of the things that really rose to the top was this idea of our facade and how we want them to feel welcome and belong. Yet for them, it's a site of great pain and suffering and a reminder of the atrocities of the colonial era. And, and not only that, but a celebration. The history of the museum emerged from that sort of sensibility. Tens of thousands of belongings that were taken under untoward circumstances where there's literally either blood on them or they were stolen or robbed or at the very least, the playing field was very unlevel where, yes, maybe something was traded uh, in exchange for an item that was culturally and historically significant. But, you know, it was in exchange for three sacks of flour because the family wasn't going to eat um, as a result of sort of the colonial context. You know, we continue to steward those uh belongings that were taken and are very much in a process of returning those belongings back to their home communities where they rightfully belong. And that's a, a major sort of focus of our work today. Thinking about the history of the museum as well, back in 1915, the sort of inaugural opening exhibit was an exhibit called The Story of Man Through the Ages. And uh, it was based on a series of busts that had been created by a Smithsonian sculptor who had several examples of different sort of racial categories. So he had made Mongoloid busts and Caucasoid busts and Negroid busts. And essentially the exhibit was a pseudo-scientific racist articulation of, of how different racial busts Racial categories had different, their skull had different morphologies. And so, of course, the brain structure was different. And that led to a clear indication of superiority and inferiority. And so this was, you know, the again, the, the kind of way that the museum emerged. And, you know, 108 some odd years later, you know, we're still very much dealing with that that history of harm, that that colonial legacy, that racist legacy, and trying to, now that we know better, do better. The local partnerships for museums are so important with tribal communities and the kinds of conversations that you're going to be having about your collection, about repatriation, about co-stewardship, co-curation, these kinds of things. 
for a staff of two full-time people can take up a lot of time and energy. We have objects and object entities as as I've referred to them, um, not knowing whether or not they are living or spiritual entities as well, that we need to contact other folks about and see see if those are object entities that we need to talk about repatriation. But again, we have to start local. We have to build relationships here. And then we have to really start to create a priority list. And how do you create a priority list of that? You just don't have the expertise to know that. How do you choose sensitive objects to talk about repatriation or co-stewardship or whatever it may be and and drop somebody's potential you know sp- spiritual entities down that priority list so far that's just kind of the the harmful work and decisions that we have to make all the time because of the decisions that had been made in the past of what was brought into the collection my whole dissertation is about whether or not, you know, the famous Audre Lord quote, the, the tools of the master can be used to dissemble the, the master's house. To what effect can museums be kind of repurposed or appropriated to serve decolonization or anti-colonization? In my experience, museums can serve oppressed communities by understanding that they are and always have been political They've always been political tools and they always will be political tools because institutions of representation that represent who people are will always be political. If museums are able to accept that and take that seriously and honor that, then they can become more ethical. It still doesn't repair the injurious harm of colonization and the appropriation of the objects from people, the stealing the ancestors. You aren't going to get past the violent foundations of museums. I do believe institutions of representation, though, matter. And in some ways, that's why I don't think that they're ever going to go away, because the battle to represent who people are is a battle of worth and value. And in our capitalist society, those battles are always going to be relevant. Back in 2011, we leased the Race Are We So Different exhibit for a period of three months. This was an exhibit developed by the American Anthropological Association in partnership with the Science Museum of Minnesota and a group of interdisciplinary scholars, and really took an approach to trying to set the record straight in terms of anthropology's history of harm and as an accomplice in the colonial endeavor. And the exhibit was uh, about race as a cultural construct and looked at the process by which that construct was was reified, made real through our various educational institutions and banking institutions and housing and legal institutions and others, and then the experience of race and racism in everyday life. It was designed as a traveling show and you know did a tour for several years around the country. And for us, it made such a huge impact on who we were as an organization that we decided to purchase it in 2015 as a core kind of signature offering at the museum. And I always say that, you know, you can't bring in an exhibit like Race Are We So Different and not really look under the hood of your own privilege and begin to unpack that and excavate it. And as we did that, for us, it became clearer and clearer that the harm we had done as an institution had been primarily to Kumeyaay peoples and other indigenous communities whose belongings and ancestors we took and refused to give back. I think it's so important to recognize, too, that 
tribal museums and culturally specific museums, they have been doing this kind of work for a very long time and have been raising these issues in ways that you know, mainstream museums like the Museum of Us just haven't paid any attention to until relatively recently. I think slowly but surely, there is a critical mass that is building in this space. And while many museums who are interested or curious or feel compelled to go this path are starting to do so in fairly performative ways, right? Um, In ways that gloss over the harm that they've done and who they've harmed and how they've harmed those folks and come short of kind of commitments to really doing better and accountability mechanisms that ensure that that's the case. I think that's also part of a much longer process of, you know, once you start talking the talk, it's a first step because then people start holding you accountable for what you've said you're going to do. And then you are at a fork in the road where either you honor what you said or you you pivot, you know, eventually more and more critical mass is built of the folks who are like, no, we're really going to take this commitment seriously and this is what it's going to look like. But yeah, I thought that was important to remember that it's not like these, you know, mainstream museums who are beginning to think about decolonizing are, you know, creating that out of whole cloth as these sort of saviors to the field. You know, it's just that these tribal and, and culturally specific museums weren't being listened to for so long. You know, when other museums are looking to work collaboratively with tribes, that they really need to cast a wide net. Um, There are nearly 200 tribal groups throughout California. We have 109 federally recognized tribes, 81 tribes seeking recognition. And I often hear people say, well, I would love to work with the tribes, but who should I work with? I mean, there's so many groups of (laughs) Ohlone's. And I always kind of have to chuckle to myself and it's And I said, well, you should work with all of them. Um, You know, it's not a matter of picking the one that feels most friendly to you or (laughs) the one that doesn't challenge the status quo. You know, you really should be looking at your surrounding area and making sure that you're engaging with the representatives of all of the tribes in the region, whether they're recognized or or not. Um, You know, that that wasn't our fault, right? (laughs) All those tribes probably, you know, not all of them, but um, they would, you know, many of them are seeking recognition. So um, it, you know, it's a matter of history. It's a matter of colonialism. Um, I think it's really important, um, you know, just on a note of cultural taxation that as native people, we're constantly put in the position of having to get the other side of the table up to speed. And so if you're going to collaborate, um, make sure that it's a reciprocal process. Make sure that the native people who are at the table are not just there to teach you. Um, do your homework ahead of time. Try to understand as much as you can, but also create a partnership that that benefits both sides and and understand what their needs are and what their expectations are because there's nothing worse than uh over promising or having you know the people on the other side of the table expect more than you're going to <laughs> to be able to offer them or offer them you know a lot of times there's bureaucratic limitations in museums uh where people want to collaborate but um, they're limited. And so I think transparency, reciprocity, you know, coming to the table informed, all of those things, I think will benefit more successful consultation and collaboration. 
when we brought the race, are we so different for an exhibit to the museum? It really forced us to look at our own history of, of privilege and harm and and sort of unpack that. And Ben Garcia played a uh, instrumental role in really continuing to push us down this path. And from there, we were able to hire the director of decolonizing initiatives. We brought in someone named Jacqueline Russell, who taught us a lot in that role for the time period that she was there. And then um, she was replaced by Brandy McDonald, another Indigenous woman who really helped us kind of take the work to a, an entirely different level. And we began to build out a strategic action plan for decolonizing initiatives uh, that sort of lays out our history of harm, that lays out, uh, that tells the truth about that, that really holds the museum accountable and comes up with a set of concrete action plans for how we can do better. And one of the things that we did early on in our process was we adopted, uh, I believe in 2018 or so, after we had adopted a policy on the curation of, of human remains, which we had never had in place. We used to have mummies and shrunken heads and other human remains uh, on display. Um, so we sort of took care of that as a first order of business. And then we expanded that to a policy that we called our Colonial Pathways Policy. And our Colonial Pathways Policy, which to my knowledge is the first of its kind, and it, it essentially says that anything that came into the museum's possession by way of a colonial pathway, very broadly defined, privileging indigenous evidence and knowledge, was subject to return to its home community. So it's sort of like NAGPRA, but um, completely next level to apply to virtually anything that came into the museum's possession. Because... Colonial pathways aren't just something that was directly robbed or stolen, but also when those power dynamics were unequal, which they always were in, in these colonial settings. Of course, the, the sort of culmination of these shifts eventually came to fruition in the recognition that it was just time to change our name from the San Diego Museum of Man, which was very much in the sort of ethos of an old school traditional anthropology museum. And we had changed so much as an organization as we continued down this path that we just felt like uh, we weren't a museum of man anymore. It was so inconsistent with our values. And so the name change back in, in 2020, in many ways, it was descriptive of the journey that we had been on over the last 10 plus years as we've leaned into anti-racist work, into decolonial work. So it's part descriptive, but even more so it's part aspirational. You know, what does a what does it truly mean to be a museum that is for all of us and not just for some of us, knowing that museums emerged out of the colonial endeavor for some of us, you know, white, wealthy individuals who were very educated and could sort of reinforce their power in society and in community by being experts in these sort of spaces, right? Um, and continuing to subjugate in, indigenous and other BIPOC people. So you know, the, the new name kind of constantly forces us to ask the question of like, how do we be a museum that is truly for all of us and not just for some of us? I think our museum challenges colonial museum practices in the way that we engage with our local tribal audience and our tribal youth is we let them really take the lead in programming. Many years ago, we were um, 
working on food sovereignty and we were having a discussion with some young men, most of them were in high school at the time. And they were really into like biohacking and they were on their football teams and, you know, they were doing all kinds of sports and we were talking about healthy foods. And we said, well, how do we get traditional food into our modern diets? Like, how do we increase that? And one of them said, well, we should have an acorn protein bar. And so we said, okay, let's do it. And over the years, we've figured out how to make an acorn protein bar. We have acorn bites now, acornbites.com. We sell them at farmer's markets on the internet. That's not a typical thing that a museum would do, have its own (laughs) protein bar, right? (laughs) So we just try to be creative. And if there are ideas from the community, um, we try to run with them. And and that's part of us being, you know, a long time serving community based organization and our community trusting that we have their best interest in mind when we're doing new things and creating new projects. One of the things that we're working on right now is a traditional food incubator, because we have found that it's hard to be a traditional food producer. And when we went to create acorn bites, we had trouble finding acorn flour. And so uh, we want to help our native people who want to do traditional foods and create a space for them to be able to have a teaching kitchen, a place to process and store, a place to have uh, support in creating their business license and going through permit processes and everything we struggled and learned through in creating acorn bites. So we're not a traditional museum. Uh, We've always uh, wanted to be a museum without walls. We never wanted to have collections. We do have some uh, objects. Most of the baby baskets were made for the exhibit. Um, There's some of our personal family items in those, but nothing in this museum was like gone out and extracted and taken, you know. So we're just trying to change essentially the definition of what a museum is or what you should expect a museum to be, because it's really about our community and how we can provide resources for our community and how we can educate not just the public, but other museum professionals in kind of that goal of decolonization. The really ordinary ethics of the collections, the I have your object and I broke it. And I have also had it for a hundred (laughs) years. I'm sorry I didn't give it back sooner. And also the person who gave it to me stole it from you. And also it might've been stolen from your grandmother's grave, right? All of these levels of intensity to the meaning of objects held in collections fall away because these objects are not seriously held as illegitimate aspects of the museum collections, but also because there isn't a reckoning with what it means to have done a bad job at being a museum. There is a lot of generational wealth in this state that was acquired by the oppression of our Native American ancestors. And today, we're just trying to revitalize culture. We're trying to get our foods. I mean, Land back is not everybody move out. Land back is about us trying to create some balance because we have had generations of trauma and suffering in our community. I've heard it said numerous times, and I was how I was influenced by by many native thinkers who had talked about if when native people do not have an understanding 
of the colonial policies that led to our current predicament, we begin to internalize what is happening to us in the present, the many challenges that we face as some kind of form of a deficiency of some kind. But when our communities really understand this history, understand what has happened as a result of colonialism and understand it with as part of the United States government's settler colonial project, then they begin to understand its costs, right? It's not necessarily seen then as a personal failing, right? We have to reconcile with that history. That kind of knowledge is exactly the kind of knowledge that our communities need in order for us to understand our history, gather strength from what our ancestors experienced and move forward, right? And, and really celebrate, you know, an indigenous futures. So for me, I, I see the opportunity for museums to help native people understand challenging histories. The museums, as we know, have our cultural belongings. You know, the knowledge that we gain through repatriating all of that knowledge and that cultural, those cultural belongings is incredibly empowering. It is all about the survival of our nations. We need this knowledge. It is really important in the present. You know, I make that argument in the early uh, chapters of the book that Native people see objects and cultural belongings as living entities. They're tied to our continuance. Museums have a role to play in that. We need to obviously gain the knowledges from the, from the representations of our history that talk about our history and all of its complexities. But the cultural belongings that are there, the knowledge about who we are as indigenous nations, our communities, all of that is, is these objects, as I say, the cultural belongings are living entities that are tied to continuance. And we need to have those connections with those materials and we need to have them home. <laughs> they need to go home. This episode concludes season two of Challenging Colonialism. But please stay tuned as we will have a few special episodes coming out soon. We also plan on returning for season three which will explore issues relating to land, genocide and the creation of parks, land back movements, rematriation, the restoration of indigenous place names, and much more. If you enjoyed and learned from this podcast, please take the time to follow us and consider rating us and writing us a review. Thank you for listening.